Hey, Snacks, it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassnack Files. This week, I'm discussing 501, The Fiery Cross. But before we get to that, I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassnack Files on all sorts of listening platforms, including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also, if you have not had a chance yet, make sure you head over to follow the Sassnack Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning Outlander Seasons 6 and 7, as well as anything Diana Gabaldon cooks up. Maybe a new Lord John Gray book? Maybe some news on Book 10? Who knows? With all of that out of the way, let's get into my analysis of the Season 5 premiere, The Fiery Cross. Does anybody else finish off this episode absolutely heartbroken? Because I don't know if I'm alone, but man, this the end of this episode just rips your heart out and stomps on it. And I think it's interesting that this episode wasn't always meant to end that way. It wasn't written that way. And Duncan, LaCroix, and Sam Hewen just did such a fantastic job with that scene that when they were in the editing room, Matt Roberts is like, oh my God, we have to end the episode like this. So I thought that was really cool, which I mean, this episode in general is full of hashtag all the feels, right? I think that it wasn't any secret when they were promoting season five, everyone was like, the first episode is for the fans. It gives you everything that you want. It gives you those relationships with those characters. We sit in the happiness for just a little bit. And then by the end, we can really feel the looming presence of everything bad that's going to happen this season. Governor Tryon is a thorn in everybody's side. Let me just, I am here to say that Governor Tryon is on my shit list, (laughs) y'all. I mean, I don't think he's on anybody's good list. He's definitely not on Santa's nice list, let's put it that way. But yeah, I feel like this episode in general really was a good way to start off what ends up being a very tumultuous season. And the way that this episode starts, it has the scene in the very beginning with Myrta and wee Jamie. Isn't he cute? Funny story about that. So whenever I went to Chicago Wizard World a couple months ago, Duncan was telling this story of how on one of these takes with this young actor that plays Jamie, (laughs) he had a booger hanging from his nose and Duncan was trying so hard not to like pay any heed to it but he said it was so hard because there was just this booger hanging like flapping in the wind oh my god and the way that Duncan tells the story just makes it even more hilarious so there is video out there of Chicago Wizard World and if you have not watched it yet on the interwebs I would highly recommend going to YouTube and searching it because it really was a phenomenal panel and I had so much fun and they told so many great stories But anyway, back to the scene. Um, We start out this episode and this season with two phenomenal scenes. We get the cold opening with Myrta and Jamie. And I'm really thinking that 
in the context of the timeline, this is probably the day of Ellen's funeral. Wee Jamie is all dressed up in his finest. He's got his best coat on and his played with his Je suis prêt Fraser brooch on. And even Murta looks like he's dressed in his best. So my guess is it's the day of Ellen's funeral and Murta's coming up. You know, Jamie's kind of sitting by himself and Murta, God bless him. He's just like, I know that your mom's gone, but I'm here and I'll always be here because this young boy, he Jamie was only eight when his mom died. So I imagine he's feeling pretty lost. And I imagine that Brian, Jamie's father, is probably not best placed to be supportive. So the fact that Murta could step in and really be there for Jamie had to have had a profound impact on Jamie, not to mention the fact that he's literally swearing an oath to do his bidding when he becomes a man and watches back, you know? It's a really fantastic moment. And then to bookend it with the way that this episode ends, ugh, it's just crushing. Like, it's it's so, so soul-crushing, guys. So we get the cold opening. We get our new credits, a little bit of a controversial new opening credits, I wasn't a huge fan. I understand why they went with the choral arrangement. It does make a statement about the theme of the season. And I had a conversation on Facebook with one of you uh, when the season six credits dropped about how they try to convey a new theme for the season with the credits and the opening music. So for season five, the theme they were trying to get across was community. So with the choral arrangement, they start out with a melody and it gets, it builds and it builds and it builds and you get more and more voices. And that's what season five was about. It was about Jamie and Claire building their home, bringing new people to the ridge, creating this network of friends and family around them. That's the whole idea of season five, community. So I understand why they did the choral arrangement. It doesn't mean it's my favorite. In fact, I think it might be my least favorite of all the arrangements, which is saying something because I really don't like season fours, but season fives, yeah. Now, season six, top notch, guys. And I know a lot of you don't like it, but I really did like it. So that's all I'll say about it in case you haven't heard it yet. But that's that's kind of the idea behind season five's choral arrangement theme song, I guess. Once we get through the new credit theme song, we get to a scene with Jamie and Roger. And I thought that the way that they opened this episode First with the scene with Jamie and Murta, and then followed right after with the scene with Jamie and Roger, really sets the tone automatically for this season. These are two relationships that season five is really going to hone in on and focus on. It's going to be the primary drive for a lot of these characters are these two relationships that Jamie has with these men. It did a great job right off the bat with establishing... These are going to be very important. Pay attention to these scenes because where the characters are at the end of the season from where they are now is going to be drastically different. And when Roger was talking to Jamie in this scene about how 
He may not know how to gut a deer or wield a sword, but he's sure he'll find a suitable trade to provide for his family. He's giving this whole list of things that he doesn't know how to do. A lot of people saw it as, oh, let's just make a list of how Roger's not good enough. But what I really saw in this monologue was they're setting up this character, laying it all out there that Roger was very ill-equipped to come to the 18th century, and I don't think that's a secret to anybody, but it makes it crystal clear the difference in this character from point A to point Z at the end of the season. He's a completely different character, much better adapted to his surroundings and his environment at the end of season five than he is at the beginning of season five. And I thought that him listing all the things that he doesn't know how to do was just a great jumping off point for Roger's character. And that in spite of everything, in spite of how ill-equipped he is to deal with this new life that he has, he's here anyway because he loves Brianna. Given Jamie's doubts about the whole thing, Claire was like, well, at least our daughter's marrying somebody who loves her. And Jamie's just like, "Mm -hmm." (laughs) mm-hmm. And she says, what, you doubt his love? Jamie has this great line. He says, I can what love can make a man do. It gives you courage, but not the sense to go along with it. I thought that was a fantastic line. I think Mad Roberts writes Jamie's character really well. There were a lot of funny little jabs, most of the time at Roger's expense, which I wasn't entirely crazy about. But it did kind of bring out Jamie's humorous side a little bit, I guess. So I did appreciate that about Matt Roberts's writing. But Jamie does have his reservations about Roger. And this is something that is brought up multiple times, whether it's little jabs like when Jamie was talking to Tryon and he was like, oh, is there going to be a hunt? Well, the groom's not much for hunting. He sings like a bird, but doesn't doesn't like shooting him or something like that. Or, you know, loud wailings, huh? Like father, like son. Just little things like that that really get it across that Jamie is not crazy. He's not buying it as far as he's not on the Roger train, which I feel like all that does is fuel the fire with all of these people that don't like Roger. It just fueled the hate. And I think to an extent, Jamie's allowed to feel the way that he feels, right? I'm not going to stand here and say that I think Roger is the best person ever and that he always makes the right decision. Jamie is a much different man than Roger. And I think that is the journey over the course of this season is them learning to be okay with each other. The sad part about it is, like the really sad part is Roger wants Jamie to like him so bad and he tries so hard. And I think that is part of the crux of it all is that Roger doesn't need to try to get Jamie to like him. He just needs to be himself. And I think a lot of the time, especially in these first few episodes, he tries too hard. Roger's a very smart individual, and Jamie respects that about him, and he also respects that Roger does love Brianna. Grudgingly, he acknowledges that. Getting back to what I was originally saying is that I think Jamie's attitude about Roger allowed the audience to feel justified in their uncertainty surrounding Roger's character. I mean, a lot of people were unsure about him, and I think that 
feeling confused about whether Roger was really there for the right reasons. It's valid. I think that Jamie being unsure and kind of snarky, typical monster-in-law type deal, that was justified for an episode or two. What really got me was when we were three, four, five episodes deep and we were still getting the attitude from Jamie. That's when I started to have a problem with it. But here in this first episode, especially when Jamie is struggling so much with giving his daughter away, you know, letting her just go and get married. I'm bitter that it's all happened off screen, but you can really tell that Jamie and Brianna have mended fences from where we were in season four, and they've really grown close. And now all of a sudden, Jamie feels as though he's going to lose his daughter all over again because she's getting married and Roger is going to fill the void in her life that Jamie used to fill. So I think that Jamie can't help but resent Roger a little bit, and I think that's part of where the attitude comes from a little bit. Not to mention the fact that Jamie was very, very set in his frame of mind that Roger should have known instantaneously back in season four that he didn't care if Jemmy wasn't his, he wanted to go back to Bree. Jamie resents the fact that Roger did not make that decision quickly, that he did not come to that decision lightly. In Jamie's opinion, Roger should have known immediately that Brianna was his one and only, and he was going to take Jimmy as his son no matter what. So that's a difference of opinion. That's a difference in personality that Jamie is just holding on to for dear life. Like, he does not want to admit that Roger is a good person, I feel like. I mean, to a certain extent, I think he knows he's a good man because Claire and Brianna love him. But he still has some reservations, not the least to mention that he's a Presbyterian. And this is something that I'm glad they threw in because it's not really mentioned in the show a lot. So I'm glad they put it in the wedding that Claire was like, brave face, darling. And Jamie's like, it's as brave a face as I can muster, given that it's not in Latin and conducted by a Catholic priest. (laughs) Yeah, so... Jamie thinks that Roger's a heretic and coupled with the fact that he's not, he didn't seem confident enough in his decision. All of that compiles to make Jamie have major reservations about him. I do understand Jamie's hesitation a little bit. I don't understand the hate, like I said, three, four, five episodes in. So get over it, Jamie. He's gonna get on board the Roger train, guys, eventually. It's just, I hate, I hate that it takes him so long to get on the Roger train, okay? But we'll move on because we have a lot to cover. And boy, like, it took me two hours to watch this episode and take all of my notes, guys, because I absolutely adore season five. But Jamie thinks that Roger's a heretic because he's a Presbyterian and this is this topic is brought up in the most phenomenal way. Like I laugh every time I see this scene. Little Germain comes running up and he's like, "Congratulations, Uncle Roger!" And don't touch my hair. And Roger's like, "Germain, you daft thing. Why not?" And he says, "Grandpa says you have ticks." 
And he says, all Presbyterians have hair ticks. <laughs> and <laughs> Roger proceeds to go over to Brianna and be like, your father thinks I'm a heretic? And she says, well, it's not just you. He thinks all Presbyterians are heretics. <laughs> like, oh, it's okay, babe. He thinks all Presbyterians are heretics. <laughs> uh, this cake tasting, fun fact, if you guys don't know, was made with like... um whiskey in the batter and they did these cake tastings all day long as they were shooting this scene and uh, they were quite a bit tipsy by the end of the scene so whoever made the cake put lots and lots of whiskey in there and I don't think that Rick and Sophie were complaining but I really do love this little scene and it takes just a little bit of the Roger wanting to go back, sprinkles that in there, leaves it for later. Um, We get a lot of that in this episode where it's just, all right, we're going to mention this and then we'll touch on it later. And that was that was one of them. So with all of that in mind, the Roger and Jamie situation does evolve over the course of the season. So I thought that sprinkling all this distaste and disdain that Jamie has for Roger coupled with quite obviously laying it out there as if we didn't already know that Roger is completely unprepared for life in the 18th century. I think it sets it up well for the journey that Roger is going to go on this season. The bulk of this episode is based on the wedding. I think starting this episode out with both Jamie and Claire helping their daughter get ready for her big day really helps us to get back into the mindset of where we ended season four because Claire and Jamie, they're so happy to be with Brianna on her wedding day. And Claire says, well, it's not the satin and orange blossom that I always imagined, but it's perfect in its own little way. And Claire, when she left Brian Freedom and Whiskey, she made her peace with the fact that she was never going to get to see Brie get married or have children. As much as that hurt, she was willing to give it up to be with Jamie with Brie's blessing. They both finished that episode out realizing that that was probably never going to happen for them, that they were never going to have that moment. And so when we come back to season five and Claire is helping Brianna get ready for her wedding, It's everything that Claire ever dreamed of, you know, helping her do her hair, helping her put on her dress. And Claire never had her mother with her for her weddings. Her mother died when she was really young, and it was so tragic, you know? But I think that makes Claire appreciate what she has with Brianna even more. And I think the same can be said for Jamie. When he sent Claire back through the stones... In Dragonfly and Amber, he never expected in a million years to be able to have this moment with his daughter. And he gave that up willingly because it meant that his daughter was safe and well cared for by a man that loved her mother and her. And so Jamie was willing to make that sacrifice. But that doesn't mean that he isn't thrilled beyond belief to be with Brianna on her wedding day. The scene between Jamie and Brie where he brings her the something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, and a silver penny for her shoe. That scene is really touching 
it took me a couple of watches for me to truly understand the nuance of all the facial expressions in this little scene, this exchange between Jamie and Brie. First off is is the regret that Myrta can't be there. And I know that Brie and Jamie both kind of, they they feel off about that, but it is what it is, you know. But primarily, it's just the thought that went into this gift, however small it may seem, of Jamie giving Brie these items. Because Jamie, when he walks around the corner, he's shell-shocked at his daughter and her appearance. And just, you can see it all over his face. He's just, he loves her so much. And it's that shock value that every father has when they see their daughter on their wedding day that the little girl the baby that you have in your mind is no longer that little baby she's a grown woman she's beautiful she's getting married she's going to have a family of her own and these are your final moments in a lot of respects of her being your little girl for the last time and so i think all of these emotions are are going through jamie's head Brie, on the other hand, on the other side of things, is seeing this father that she didn't know for most of her life being this kind, caring, really thoughtful man. And the fact that he remembered something that she probably mentioned to him in passing. Oh, you know, in my time, we have this tradition where we do something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue before I walk down the aisle because it's good luck. And she probably was just reminiscing about her time and how they would do things. And he probably asked her, you know, if you were getting married in the 20th century, what would you do on that day? So to see that he took the time to make things as perfect as possible for her, to get her that something old, something new, it is really just a touching scene. And I think that Brianna, more than anything, She tells him, she says, yeah, it's not what I had pictured, but the best part about this whole thing is, is I don't have to imagine you. You're standing here right in front of me. So no, it's not what I always pictured when I pictured my wedding when I was young, but in a lot of ways, it's so much better. So when we look at this idea of the wedding in general and this episode the grand scheme of it, of 501, the fiery cross. The idea of the old and the new is very, very prevalent in this episode because we get the idea, yes, the very obvious thrown in your face, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, the idea of that theme for the wedding. But it's carried on Throughout the rest of the episode, we are constantly getting the idea of Scotland and old traditions and the old way of life mixed with this new country and this new family and this new community. It's all very poetic. I really will, I'll keep touching back on this as we move forward into the different topics of conversation. But this is something that they are constantly making these blends of the old Scottish culture versus the new country that they are in, making a new life for themselves. It's something Jamie is very in tune with. And I think that it 
benefits him to be in tune with that side of things, to see what his tenants and his family and his men see what motivates them. So I think that that's a very interesting theme to touch on as we continue on. But we also see it in the little things like Brianna's wedding dress, which the idea behind the wedding dress, I mean, you have Claire's iconic wedding dress from season one. So how do you follow that up but make it Brianna? First of all, you have a different costume designer this season in Trisha Bigger. So naturally things look a bit different, but the idea is to make it kind of a seamless transition. I don't know that it was quite seamless. I definitely noticed a different look for almost all of our characters. And it was a very noticeable look. But at the same time, I mean, they were beautiful. The costumes were awesome. Um, I just don't know that it was as seamless of a transition as they hoped it would be. But anyway, getting back to the wedding dress. The idea behind this dress was that it was borrowed from Jocasta and kind of done up to make it more Brianna. If you look at the design of this wedding dress, it really is keeping a hold of this old versus new. It blends very well the idea of who Brianna is as a character because first off, the dress is white and Brianna, I'm sure, always pictured having a white wedding dress, but white wedding dresses didn't come into fashion until Queen Victoria's wedding to Prince Albert in the 19th century. So the idea of having a white wedding dress was not something that anybody ever thought of in the 18th century. It was a very modern thing to do, to have a white wedding dress. So that was Brianna's kind of influence in there. And then you have all of the nod to her heritage. You have the embroidered thistles all across her kerchief and her bodice and the hem of her dress. And whenever they are at the reception later, the Kaylee, she actually tucks up her skirts, like kilts them. And the underskirt is this gorgeous tartan. So these are both nods to her Scottish heritage and who her family is. Throwing all of that into one garment not only takes talent, but also really is very thoughtful and speaks to, like I said, the theme of this episode. So I thought that that was pretty cool. The ceremony itself for the wedding was really cool, but there were a couple of moments in this episode in general, one of which was in the ceremony for me. That were just really cheesy. And that's why when I watched this episode the first time, guys, I was a little disappointed. And I know that's going to sound like sacrilege because I know a lot of you really loved this episode. And for some of you, it was your favorite episode of season five. And I'm not faulting you for that. It's a really great episode. I completely admit that. But when I first watched it, I was a little bit on the fence because there were some major cheese fest moments. I'll give you an example. So when we're in the ceremony, Roger and Brie are saying their vows. And it's from Jamie's point of view. He's watching the wedding. And he glances over at Fergus and Marsley. And they're having this beautiful moment where they're staring into each other's eyes and cuddling while they're holding their two beautiful children 
And then Jamie looks at Roger and Bree, who are staring lovingly into each other's eyes as they say their vows. And then he looks over at Claire, and Claire's looking back at him. And they're all thinking about their weddings, right? You can't go to a wedding and not think about your own wedding and that feeling of love and intimacy that you had with your significant other. And even the flashback to their wedding, I didn't mind that because we get it. Like, why would we not take the opportunity to see one of our favorite moments of the entire series, the wedding, and seeing our favorite couple fall in love all over again. You know, okay, we'll take that moment. It's earned, whatever. Like, even that didn't bother me. What bothered me was you've got all these phenomenal actors that are giving everything they have to this moment, and they are doing a fantastic job. I know what they are thinking without them saying a word because they're that good. I did not need them to say, as long as we both shall live. I didn't need that. And I think that this is a good example of show, don't tell. You showed me fine. It was perfect. I knew exactly what they were thinking and how in love they were and that they were looking back at their own wedding days. I knew that. What pulled me out of the moment was that cheesy, as long as we both shall live, as they looked deeply into each other's eyes. That was overdone for me. It overcooked it. Just a tad. I mean, normally I love all the cheese. Another one that really bugged me, as much as I love any scene between Jamie and Brie, when they were in the surgery and Brianna said, no matter where I am, I will always be your wee girl. Jamie and Brianna had had more of a relationship up until this point, I would have felt like that was fantastic. But A, he's never ever called her his wee girl. And B, I, as an audience member, did not feel that that moment was earned at all. I'm like, Okay, last we saw them in season four, they weren't even talking to each other. We really only got one episode of them having any sort of relationship. And now fast forward, and it's almost like whiplash because we've got Brianna telling her father that she'll always be his wee girl. And we never saw them connect on that sort of level. So it did feel a bit cheesy. It felt like that line was in there just to satisfy the audience. But honestly, I didn't feel like it was earned. By all means, let me know if I'm the only one that feels this way. I am more than happy to hear your thoughts on it. But yeah, there were just a couple of moments in this episode in general that really threw me for a loop. Those two being the primary ones. The good thing about this ceremony And the episode in general was the music. O-M-G. Bear McCreary was on fire this episode. It was amazing. And I think the peak for me was when Jamie and Clara and Brianna come out of the house and they stand at the top of the stairs by the ceremony site. And Jamie says, the Frasers of the Ridge are here. Oh, I get goosebumps, goosebumps, guys, because this all goes back. We're seeing so many pull-ins from all the different episodes from the past. 
this pulls back to the false bride. There are a couple of tie-ins and references to that episode from season four. This one in particular, when they're at the calling of the clans, Brianna and Roger at the Scottish festival, they're all saying the Mackenzies are here, the McDonald's are here, the Camerons are here. This is what happens at a gathering. And in the fifth book, The Fiery Cross, the first 300 pages of that book are a gathering. It's the basis for the Grandfather Mountain Highland Games that we have today. These are the very first beginnings of what that ends up becoming. The very games that Brianna and Roger attended in The False Bride. They forewent the Grandfather Mountain Gathering or Mount Helican as it was back in the 18th century. They they kind of passed over that in order to have Brianna and Roger's wedding and to have a excuse to have a big party, I guess. Because in the books, it was just the gathering and a bunch of stuff happened within the gathering. Roger and Brianna did get married, but that wasn't the primary reason for the gathering. I thought that that was really cool, that tie-in back to The False Bride. The other tie-in to The False Bride that might not be as obvious is after Governor Tryon gives Jamie his ultimatum. Tryon's done waiting, right? Jamie's been kicking the can for too long, like he's been walking the tightrope, and Governor Tryon's done. He's had it. He's lost all patience. He wants Murta's head on a spike. And he makes it plain what he wants on no uncertain terms. And whenever all of this is going on, I couldn't help but appreciate how much of a politician this man is. And I suppose because he's the governor of North Carolina, he has to have some level of diplomacy and political correctness about him. He knows that there's a time and a place for business versus cordiality. So he's all sunshine and roses with Brianna and Roger. And he's like, my profound best wishes on your wedding day, blah, blah, blah. And oh, don't worry about the fact that you don't have a room for me in the house. Attentions are where they should be today. You know, and then he's like, nods at Jamie, like, yeah, come here. And um, basically calls Jamie a liar and a thief for how he's been acting with his letters and makes no qualms about accusing him of unsightly behavior. He makes it clear that he's done playing games. Jamie needs to get his shit together and go after Murta, and that he is leaving a man <laughs> on Fraser's Ridge to make sure that it gets done. It's very foreboding. It's not a good sign for what's in store for Jamie for the rest of this season. It puts him in a really tight spot having to walk the line between Murta and his loyalty to the crown. I can see why this storyline was enticing for the executives at Stars. I suppose. I don't think there's any doubt on my feelings about the decision to keep Myrta in the show. However, I'm done complaining about that because as much as I was kind of upset by them keeping Myrta around, I actually really did enjoy this plot for season five. And I completely understand why Sam enjoyed this storyline. 
because it makes for some really, really great scenes and plots and tension for Jamie. It just puts him in a rough spot from the get-go. And so I really enjoyed it. So Tryon threatens Jamie in no uncertain terms. He doesn't come out and be like, I'm going to take your land if you don't hunt down Myrta Fitzgibbons and deliver his body to me at New Bern. <laughs> He's much too smooth for that. But that is the general consensus that Jamie made a deal with the governor that he would keep law and order. He pledged his oath to the crown and to the service of the crown. And now Tryon is collecting that debt. The unspoken part of that is that if Jamie does not hold up his end of the bargain, he's going to renege on the deal and take Jamie's land from him. Now, the show simplifies this plot a lot. It's a lot more complicated in the books, and it has to do with the stipulations of land grants in North Carolina and what the legalities of it all were, who was technically allowed to have land grants, and how Tryon chose to conveniently ignore certain aspects of Jamie's character in order to give him this land grant, which would have made it much easier to pull the rug out from underneath Jamie if something went south. So there were a lot more technicalities in the book, but I was okay with the show kind of leaving that out because it it's easier to understand and follow the way that they do it in the show. So basically, it was simply give me what I want or I'm taking the land back. End of story. So this is kind of where the false bride conversation with Jamie and Claire comes back into it. As I said a couple minutes ago, this parallel may not be as straightforward and obvious as previous parallels, but basically what it all boils down to is that when Claire is asking Jamie, well, what happens if you don't hunt down Myrta? And Jamie says, he'll brand me a traitor and take back the land. In season four in The False Bride, Jamie has a conversation with Claire while they're discussing. Claire says, well, what do you really want? I don't want you making any decision because you think it's what I want. And Jamie says, I was an outlaw when first we met. And if it were up to me, I would do so again. But it's not just me anymore. It's you. It's young Ian. It's Fergus. It's Marsily. So he has so many more people to think about than just himself. And that's all kind of brought full circle. And then some, because he's saying, yeah, I still have all those people to consider. But now he has tenants, people that rely on him to provide stability and security. And it's not as simple as it even was a year ago, because now they have people that are on their land. And if Tryon pulls the rug out from underneath Jamie and Claire and takes their land, all those people are without homes or they're now living on land that belongs to the crown and that gets real messy in a hurry. Jamie is fully aware of the fact that his hands are tied and that he doesn't really have a choice that he has to go on this manhunt. Years from now, when the revolution actually becomes a problem on their front doorstep, he's going to reevaluate his situation because there is going to be a time and a place for him to turn his coat, but it's not here and it's not now. 
there are way too many things at stake and he's perfectly aware of the fact that it is way too early in the game to show his hand, basically. The last thing that there really is to discuss, and it's got several different parts to it, but it's the idea of the oath taking. This is all part of the gathering that calls back to season one. We're getting, again, the old with the new. Jamie says, this is how things were. In the Highlands, a chieftain would light the fiery cross to call all the men of his lands to take up their weapons and prepare for battle. We're not the clan and I'm not your chief. He's saying that this may be a new time and a place, but we still all have these values ingrained in us and we still function the same way. He's calling for their loyalty. By doing this oath-taking, he's calling his men to him. And I think that he's beginning a new tradition in the old style, I guess, reaffirming his identity as the Laird of Fraser's Ridge. And while they're not a clan and he's not a chief, he's wanting to reinvigorate some of those old ideals. Basically, he's saying that if these men pledge their loyalty to him, he's willing to become their chief in a lot of respects. He's willing to give them safety and security. And as he says, just as you give me your word, I give you mine. I will serve you as you are swearing to serve me. That's the idea that Jamie is putting forward. And he takes that very, very seriously. That's an old ideal that is being brought forth into this new world that, yes, he's their landlord, but he is also pledging himself to them. He's not just the person that owns their land. He is willing to be there for them, provide for them, protect them from whatever may be coming. And in exchange, if he ever needs them, they will do the same for him. They will be there for him and help protect what is theirs. I think when Tryon made that threat, he didn't really... Um, he says, I chose you for this job because most of these people are Scots and you're one too. <laughs> that's paraphrasing, but basically that that's why he chose Jamie for this job because he knew what ideals and values these regulators have. He knows where they come from and what motivates them, I think, is kind of Tryon's frame of thought. Jamie takes offense at this, and rightly so. He's like, so wait a minute. You didn't choose me for this because you knew you could rely on me. You chose me because you thought that I'd give you the inside tract on how to deal with these people. And so when Jamie makes the decision to go at it, like, accept it for what it is, and he says, if Tryon wants a Scott, I'll give him a Scott. That moment when Jamie dusts off his trunk and is going through his kilt and with his dirk, the music in that moment with the drums and the Gaelic singing, followed shortly by the bagpipes and all of that, oh, it gives me chills. Honestly, the music and how it fits into this episode is probably one of the reasons that this episode ranks as high as it does for me. In the books, Jamie wears his kilt. It makes a comeback much earlier on in Drums of Autumn. And they didn't bring it back in season four because 
They wanted the moment that Jamie wears his kilt again to be a very powerful reveal. They wanted him to do it with intention and purpose. I think that they nailed it with choosing for this moment to be when Jamie wore his kilt again for the first time. Because at this juncture in history, Tartan and bagpipes and all of that, it's all banned, outlawed in Scotland. They're not allowed to have their culture the way that it was in Scotland. And so a lot of these people, they they feel like they're coming home. When Jamie comes in in his kilt and his sword and lights the fiery cross and they have this gathering with the oath taking and all of that, they feel like they're coming home. And I think it sparks something in his men that they're like, oh, this is familiar. I know how to do this. This is what I'm comfortable with. I think it's interesting that Jamie is so comfortable with this, it seems. Um, and I think it's just because it's so deeply ingrained in who all of these people are. And I think that, you know, we see Lord John's reaction and we see Lieutenant Knox's reaction. They're kind of in awe of the spectacle that they're witnessing because it's so foreign to them. But they also recognize the momentous occasion that they're witnessing and that it's something special, that these people are committing to one another and they're forming a bond and a relationship that they'll be able to call on for years to come. This is a community and a network that is always going to be interconnected because of this oath that they are giving to each other. Heretofore, these men have only sworn oaths to their family and to the crown, and now they're swearing an oath to each other to be there for each other, to protect each other, to support each other. More than anything, that's what Jamie wanted out of this, was a sense of community and a sense that they could rely on one another to get the job done when it needed to get done. And we'll see that come full circle. This episode starts with bookends, but this season also kind of has a bookend as well. So we'll see the completion of this oath that all of these men are swearing to Jamie by the end of this season. And it's in a really powerful way. Not in the way that you would expect, not in the way that I expected. So it was kind of interesting how this season unfolded. I absolutely loved, and we're going to end on this because I really did love it, that Jamie calls his sons to stand by his side at this fire. And that's kind of how this season starts. Because as wonderful as the wedding was and all of that stuff, I mean, I loved it. Don't get me wrong. But I feel like that was all fluff. And the meat of this season, the backbone of what we're developing here happens with this oath taking. And from then through to the finish of this episode. And so Jamie calls Roger to him. And Roger doesn't know what to do. He's really lost. He was like, what are you, are you talking to me? Like, I don't know what I'm doing. What, what do you want me to do? So Roger watches intently so that when Jamie calls him, he has already memorized what he's supposed to do. And Jamie thinks he's going to have to hold his hand and lead him through it. And I think that this was the first moment that we see Jamie kind of appreciate Roger for who he is as a person. And Roger's ability to instantly recall something is kind of brought from the books 
it's the scholar in him, but it's also the performer in him. And in the books, Roger makes a point to memorize different folk songs and and things that he hears, and he writes them down in a little book. I thought that this was a way to kind of bring that talent into the fold of who he is in the show as well. And it's, it is, it's an instant recall for him. And Jamie looks impressed. And I think the look that Brianna and Claire are giving Jamie, it's like, um, are we sure we want to do this? Or, okay, do what you got to do. And Jamie makes him a captain because Roger is not well equipped for this life. And Jamie knows that the best way to protect Roger is to keep him by his side. To make him a captain, yes, it's bestowing a lot of responsibility on Roger, but it's also keeping him close to Jamie so Jamie can keep an eye on him as well. This wasn't all for formality's sake. Roger really and truly means what he's pledging for Jamie. He believes in the oath of loyalty that he is giving Jamie. So I really, really loved this part of the episode simply for that bond that is forming between Jamie and Roger. It might be a tenuous one, and they're still not really sure about each other, but they mean what they say to each other. Jamie is calling on Roger as a son of his house to stand by his side, and Roger is reciprocating in kind and saying, yes, I will stand by you. I will help protect our family and I will go to battle with you. I think this is the foundation for what I hope is going to be a fantastic relationship for them in season six as well. To finish out this scene, Jamie calls on Fergus, and he calls him the son of my name and of my heart. I love it. I love how much Jamie loves Fergus, even though he's just an adopted son. He really means the world to Jamie, and the sense of pride and shock that Fergus had at being called and Marsley's pride in watching Fergus stand up with Jamie and swear to stand by him. It was everything. Everything. I loved that whole moment between them. Closing remarks for myself. The Really, the only thing that I did not talk about is the gorgeous new house that John Gary Steele designed called The Big House. And it is big, but it's not like super big. It's not unheard of big. It's actually pretty historically accurate. Plus, the reason that they made it the size that they did is because if you're using it as a practical location and you have to fit an entire film crew in one of those rooms, it gets pretty small pretty quick. So logistically, it made sense. It's not historically inaccurate. And yeah, so... I, I liked it. And what I really love is that they work on this house all season long. We don't see it completely finished until the penultimate episode of season five. I love that they take their time with it and they're showing the progression of it. It's not like, oh, it's done. So I really do love it. And we'll talk and take notes on some of the design choices as well as we continue on into season five because especially when we start getting some paint colors up in here. I am here for it, guys. So with all of that, I will bring my thoughts on the season five premiere to a close with the quote of the episode. I had quite a few this week, guys. 
This episode was full of fantastic moments, fantastic quotes. I loved the moment between Roger and Jocasta when Jocasta is totally baiting him. She is every bit as cunning as her brothers, let me tell you. And she is basically saying that she's giving Jeremiah River Run because well, if you won't love the lad for whose son he is, then maybe you'll love him for his prospects. And Roger, who clearly thinks of Jimmy as his son, is completely offended, which is exactly what Jocasta was hoping to accomplish. He gets in her face and he says one of the best Roger lines ever. He says, let me put this very plainly. I do not want your money. My wife does not want your money, and my son will not have it. Cram it up your hole, I. I think the mission is twofold for Jocasta, and I think it was completely successful. The first was Roger making a scene clear enough that whenever Jocasta has to explain to people what just happened, they're like, oh, so Roger really does think that Jimmy is his son. And that kind of clears away any doubts and rumors that people may be having that's spinning around about Jimmy. And secondly, it verifies to Jocasta that Roger really isn't in it for the money. He isn't in it for what he can get from the marriage. He loves Brianna and he loves Jimmy. And it motivates him to claim Jimmy as his son formally, which is really just fantastic. It's a great moment. My only sad face moment was that it wasn't as public as it was in the books. Roger made his claim for Jimmy as his son in front of Claire and Jamie and Lizzie, as well as Brianna. So I did kind of miss that because I think that that would have gone a little ways towards gaining Jamie's respect more quickly, I suppose. But um, overall, I still thought it was a very touching scene that Roger comes in and he says, you know, yesterday was our wedding and it was about the two of us. But from now on, it's going to be about our family. And I really love that sentiment that, yeah, yesterday was a celebration of our love for one another, but now it's about our family. It's so beautiful. And so Roger, that's what I love about Roger. And I think that's one thing that we don't really get a lot is we don't get these little moments that show who he is. And he's so fantastic. I really hope that we delve deeper into his character in season six. And I think we will. As far as performance of the episode, there were so many fantastic moments that I could not just pick one cast member. I really think it was an ensemble performance, especially with the wedding. We had so many cameos. I mean, we had Maria Doyle Kennedy as Jocasta. We had David Barry as Lord John. We had Tim Downey as Governor Tryon. So many fantastic appearances by so many fantastic cast members. And then, of course, you've got your staples. You've got Sam Hewen and Katrina Balfe and Sophie Skelton and Rick Rankin. OMG, guys, the list goes on and on. So I really thought it was an ensemble performance for the cast. However, Bear McCreary was on his A-game this episode. I so appreciate him on so many levels. Like I said, I think the music was one of the most fantastic parts about this episode. The way that he creates these different themes and then weaves them in and out of the scenes so flawlessly and so perfectly, it only adds and never detracts from the mood of the episode. And I could go on and on. I just love it. So... My performance of the episode actually goes to Bear McCreary. 
that brings my analysis of the season five premiere, The Fiery Cross, to a close. And as always, I open it up to the masses for you guys to tell me what you thought on the season five premiere. So without further ado, let's get into listener comments. Regina Geisert says, was not surprised at all that Bonnet was alive. As soon as he eyeballed the keys, I knew he was going to escape because a villain death is never that easy. Marsley is probably my favorite wedding guest. I love her character and her growth since season three. It was great seeing Jamie passive-aggressively shave Roger at the start of the episode, and then to see him go from macho dad to proud father who isn't quite ready to let his daughter go, to letting loose a bit and dancing a jig, and then finally return to who is born to be a Scottish leader in full regalia. Overall, I laughed, I cried, it moved me, Bob. (laughs) Bonnet alive. It didn't surprise me either. I mean, yeah, the way that they ended season four didn't really leave any room for doubt, I suppose. I did love the quote that Jamie, when um, Lord John was like, well, there have been sightings of Bonnet in the province. And Jamie's like, that bastard has an ungodly way of escaping death. Maybe hell's too good for Stephen Bonnet. The devil will not let him in. <laughs> and I think that's how we all feel. Like, my God, like hell's too good for Stephen Bonnet. <laughs> um, yeah. Marsily as a wedding guest was your favorite. Yeah, I would have to agree. I mean, obviously, I love Lord John and the whole tongue twister game whenever he was like, Shakespeare, anyone? And everybody's like, who the hell invited this guy? So Lord John was probably one of my favorites. But I mean, Jermaine. I mean, in the entire wedding, Jermaine is so bored stiff. Like, I love all the shots of him just not paying attention to the wedding at all. And you know Because they shot that scene over, like, a week because there were so many principal actors that they had to get close-ups on. I can't remember how many times Rick and Sophie said they had to say their vows, but it was a lot. They spent a long time filming that scene. So you can tell that the kids were just over it. Every single one of them. They were like, can we go now? (laughs) Poor guys. So yeah, I mean, Jermaine and then obviously the line where he was like, grandparents says all Presbyterians have hair ticks. (laughs) Yes, I love that little boy. (laughs) And he's actually back as Jermaine in season six. So I am so excited, guys. So excited. As for the Jamie passive aggressively shaving Roger, funnily enough, Rick and Sam do such a fantastic job in that scene. It really looks like Sam is jerking Rick around all over the place, but it's completely choreographed and Rick is actually taking the lead on it and moving his head. So that's kind of like a little fun fact about that scene. But yeah, I mean, that scene was fantastic. All the undercurrents of, are you really good enough? Yes, I'm good enough. I love your daughter. Do you love, do you really love my daughter? All the little things that are happening in that scene, the subtext is fantastic. So yeah, I agree. I laughed, I cried, and it moved me. Yes, you're, (laughs) we're on the same wavelength, Regina. Casey Filson says, this is my favorite episode of the season. I love all the Jamie Claire Brianna scenes and love seeing Jamie as a dad, especially the sweetness of not wanting to let Brie go having just got her. My favorite scene is probably the Frasers of the Ridge are here. Just something about it. Oh my gosh. Yes, Casey. Yes, I agree. I get goosebumps every time. Casey says, I also enjoyed watching Roger telling Jocasta to cram it up her hole. Oh gosh, that was great. 
I do wish the scene where he places his blood on Jimmy was made more of a public thing so that no one else questioned his love and loyalty to his family. But it didn't seem like the series made that big of a deal of it. I was sad, but also understanding due to time and financial limits that a wedding, a joyous, happy time, was chosen to bring about Tryon's hunt for Myrta and the revelation that Bonnet was still alive. I get why the writers did what they did, but after everyone going through what they had, it's like, can't these poor people get a break and just enjoy a day of happiness? (laughs) Not on Outlander, Casey. Not on Outlander. But yeah, other than that, that's basically a very succinct way of putting what I just took an hour to say. So congratulations, you're officially better at putting things into word than I am. Uh, Last comment of the day is from Melanie Wyatt. She says, I enjoyed the episode, but I was disappointed that the season started with the wedding and didn't address some of the family dynamics that I was waiting to see play out, like Roger meeting the baby, Claire and Jamie's reaction to his return, etc. On the other hand, I did enjoy seeing all the family there. I think my favorite guest would be Jermaine and the second would be Jocasta. I also love the quartet, especially the cellist. His facial expression was priceless. I don't think I was surprised that Bonnet was alive, but disappointed. I was glad to see Roger finally get to wear some decent clothes after his season four wardrobe. I really liked the scene between he and Jocasta and Ulysses. I also laugh when I see the scene with Josiah and Claire's surgery, and he looks at her surgical tools and tells her that he's feeling better already. Another favorite scene is the oath-taking at the Burning Cross. I liked the speech Jamie gave. It was very effective. I felt like I was at church and it was time to take communion. Overall, I think they did a good job setting up the plot for the season. Yeah, the scene where Jamie was giving his speech actually kind of reminded me of the episode in season two, Je Suis Prey, when he's giving all of his men the speech about what it's like to go into battle. And he's really revving them up and, again, creating this sense of community. He's really great about giving these big, meaningful speeches that really connect with people on a deeper level. So, yeah, that that kind of gave me season two Jamie leader of men vibes. As for Roger's clothing, you know, I had never really thought about his season four wardrobe, but yeah, it was kind of hideous. So yeah, it was good to see him in some good clothes. You're right, Melanie. Alrighty, guys. Well, that wraps up listener comments. And with all of that, it's about time to wrap up. In case you missed my last episode, we uh, got a season six release date, March 6th, 2022, y'all. And since the last time we spoke... We also got news that there is going to be a season two of Men in Kilts. They are going to be filming in New Zealand this time and talking about how Scottish immigrant influenced the current New Zealand culture. So I think that will be a fantastic, rip-roaring good time. I'm sure it gives Sam plenty of excuses to put Graham in all kinds of terrible situations that he doesn't want to be a part of, and it's going to be so much fun. I imagine that we will probably see season two of Men in Kilts next Droughtlander probably in the fall or winter months as we get deep into the midst of, oh God, Droughtlander. I've been pondering it quite a bit, guys. I don't think I'm going to get all the way through season five before season six premieres. With the holidays coming up, I think it's probably going to be fairly impossible for me to keep with the one episode a week. I'm still going to try it, but I'm not putting a lot of pressure on myself because I do have a lot going on. That coupled with the fact that my book is releasing on Valentine's Day weekend, almost 
assures the fact that there will not be an episode that week. So um, lots going on. I'm going to try to get as far into season five as I can. Like I said, it's my favorite season. So I've been very excited to chat with you guys about it. As this episode is running super long, I can imagine that most of my season five episodes will run this long. So I'm excited to chat all the things with you guys. And like I said, I'll keep going until season six airs and however far we get is however far we get. So with that, I'm going to sign off for the day and for the week. I will talk to you guys next week when we discuss the second episode of season five, Between Two Fires. With that, I'm signing off. You guys have a great week. Stay safe out there and I will chat at you later. Bye. Bye.